I hadn't thought through this at all. Okay. I bought $5,000 with the stock, got shipped out to Australia. I went around and I found guys in Australia to help me with the packaging and distribution because we needed Australian packaging, et cetera. I then hadn't sold one yet, but ordered $80,000 worth of stock. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. If you're not already a member of our community, please go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join and receive the following five free benefits. The risk reduction checklist, my weekly investment research email to help you increase your returns, a 25% discount on all ASTOTS Academy courses, instant access to our Facebook community to get to know guests and fellow listeners, and finally, my curated list of the top 10 podcast episodes. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guests, Rail Bricker. Rail, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Let's go. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you to the audience. And already, just looking at you, you're ready. I'm normally standing up, but today I'm sitting down. But I can see you got a lot of energy. Yeah, that's the only way to convey my energy to people. Love it. Love it. All right. So, ladies and gentlemen, from being 6,000 feet, underground in a mine to starting an education business that grew to have more than 4,000 students to spending years working in venture capital. Rail Bricker has seen it all. He has listed companies on multiple international stock exchanges and his financial services group has settled more than $3 billion in loans over 19 years. He has a diverse work history combined with unique global research interviews with companies in more than 25 countries. Taking this knowledge and experience makes him perfect to advise people on growing and achieving excellence as he has experienced the roller coaster himself and knows how to navigate twists, turns, and loops. You can reach him at www.excellencepodcast.com. Rail, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. So I'm often asked about how I started on the mines, which is a, so I, I grew up in a fairly middle class family in South Africa. I moved to Australia 22 years ago, but I grew up and I was not in a position where my parents could afford to send me to university. So I had to get a scholarship. I was good at maths and science. And so I was naturally pushed along to engineering. There was a t-shirt I had that said, I don't even know what an engineer does. And now I are one. And so I needed a scholarship and I was offered one by one of the big mining houses. So I kind of did engineering and then started working for them. And that's how I ended up being an engineer on a mine shaft of at 6,000 foot underground. You know, it was a, it was an interesting time of my life. Mm. Must've been, I mean, I just feel like so terrifying when you visualize that much earth above your head. You tend not to, you are actually more concerned about the fact that it's 30 plus centigrade. So closer to 90-odd Fahrenheit underground continuously at 90% humidity. So you come underground, your overall is wet, and it stays that way until you go back up. So, yeah, it has its experiences. It has its terrifying moments. But it was overall, in retrospect, I learned a lot about managing people 
but I never appreciated that experience at the time. Mm. Yeah, just a tough experience. Maybe you could just take a minute to tell us a little bit about, you know, listeners in the US, listeners across Asia and Europe who are, you know, curious to know more about your business and what you do and all that. So maybe you can just give a little insight into that. Yeah. So when I came to Australia, I was in venture capital in South Africa, joined a fund here. Two years later, they asked me to move to Sydney after we'd listed the property, sorry, listed the fund on the stock exchange in Australia. I decided not to do that. That was where I went out on my own. I went into a business and I'll talk more about that as my worst investment ever shortly. Mm. But after that, I realized a few things and I ended up starting a financial services group also out of coincidence more than anything else. And that business has now grown to about just over 3 billion in mortgages. They're over, it's almost 20 years now since I started it. And about seven years ago, I had two cardiac stents in 2013. I was doing triathlons, training for a marathon, and I just started feeling very tired. And I went to the cardiologist who said, by the way, you've got two blockages. You escaped a bullet because you didn't actually have a heart attack, but we're going to fix it. And so that made me realize that I really need to follow some passions. And one of those passions is being on stage. I, in my three billion in mortgages, a billion was sold from stage. And so I knew that I could be on stage talking. And then at the same time, the mortgage industry asked me to talk at their conference on how to build a mortgage business. We just topped two billion at the time. And so I went, yeah, why not? So I went to their conference, spoke to a packed audience, and I got on a plane and started writing a book and said, that's what I want to pursue as a passion. I want to pursue, and behind me, you'll see a sign, one of the wooden blocks that says business excellence. I want to make businesses more excellent. And so I pursue a passion. I, as a professional speaker, I still own my financial services group, but I'm known as the business excellence guy. And I work with business leaders to create business excellence and rich and robust cultures to grow their bottom line. And I also have measure, and I put measures in to help them grow their bottom line. So that's what I do. That's my passion project, but I still love helping people become millionaires by helping them structure their finance correctly. Exciting. Well, ladies and gentlemen, just go to excellence podcast and learn more. So rail, why don't I, move us into the next part of this interview. And that is to ask you this question. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever, ever, ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstance leading up to it and tell us your story. Okay. So I was in the venture fund here in Australia. We had listed on the stock exchange. It was about four months later. And for a whole variety of reasons, I wasn't comfortable. I had spent days, weeks, months writing prospectus, running around the country, raising the capital. And then I got handed a $3,000 bonus by the, the board and said, oh, we'd like you on the board, but are we giving you a $3,000 bonus and go back to your desk and do some more work? And I just felt I wasn't in my right place. I loved the venture capital space. I loved what we we're doing. I just had to get out of that fund. And so... An opportunity came up in April 2001. I flew to Germany. A friend of mine in South Africa had introduced me to a product that was being produced in Germany called Flip and Grip. Now, sounds weird. Flip and Grip, so put 2001 into context. 
all data was, there was no such thing as SSD drives. Thumb drives weren't invented yet. People were storing data on DVDs or CDs or CDs and becoming to DVDs. And so that was the backup medium besides hard drives that everybody was using. Flip and Grip was a, a fantastic looking set of CD covers where you'd put 20 of them into a binder. And so you could have binders on your shelf with 20 CDs and it was really cool tech. You pressed a little button on the side of the CD holder and the CD popped out and they came out in all the Apple colors the blueberry color and the blackberry color. The Apple Max came out at that time and there's five different sort of shaded pastel colors. And so I thought it was really cool. I flew over to Germany, and so I invested. That was my first part of the investment, put money in, went to Germany, bought you know $5,000 worth of stock, brought it back to Australia. I hadn't thought through this at all, okay? Um, I bought $5,000 worth of stock, got shipped out to Australia, I went around and I found guys in Australia to help me with the packaging and distribution because we needed Australian packaging, et cetera. I then hadn't sold one yet, but ordered $80,000 worth of stock. <laughs> and it was an entire container load. Got a friend who would allow me to put, you know, eight pallets or 10 pallets, whatever it was, into his warehouse. Had all that logistics stuff sorted out. In July, I left the venture fund. You know, all this was happening in the background. And then I decided, right, now I better go out and sell the stuff. Now, my entire life up until that point, from starting my first business education business in 1990 to reversing that into a, a stock market listing in 1996 and being in venture funds from that period onwards, was all about selling services. And I didn't actually perceive this about myself. Someone asked me the other day, said, what's my biggest limiting belief? And I said, the limiting belief I have is that I have no limitations, that I can do anything and that I'm bulletproof. And obviously having two cardiac stents kind of taught me I'm not that bulletproof. But so I bought the stock, it arrived, and then I started going out selling. And I realized very, very quickly, well, it took me about six months, but in the space of a life, six months is pretty quick learning, that in order to be a single product line, none of the big retailers, so the, you know, the equivalent of a Staples in the US, would want to talk to you because you could only supply them with one product line. <laughs> you needed to have multiple product lines. You needed to have distribution in all the major cities. You needed lots of other logistics around it. And yet I was absolutely obsessed with the product and not anything else around it. And so... Eventually, you know, kind of my interest dwindled <laughs> because I just was banging my head against a brick wall trying to sell the stuff. I had a few guys purchase some small independent retailers, but then I didn't even have point of sale stuff for them to show people how this worked. Like, you know, to show people the beauty of it. I mean, it was, it was the right place, right time, wrong marketing. You know, I just, I never got it right. I, I kind of faded off from that. In other words, by the same token, I had just come out of venture capital. A few of the companies I'd been talking to had asked me to raise capital for them. And I went, I don't know how to do that, but I'll find out, which is my approach to most things in life. And I found out that in Australia, I had to be licensed as a finance broker or mortgage broker. So I got my license as a mortgage broker. I didn't know anything about mortgages, but I went and got a license to sell mortgages and that's how my financial services group started. 
So I was helping these people raise money. And then they said, great, you did such a good job. Can you do a home loan? And, and so as I got more and more involved in the home loan business, this warehouse of, of CD covers and binders was just gathering dust. And luckily it was a friend of mine's warehouse. So I was paying him a nominal $200 a month rent, but we'd, we'd knocked off $80,000 worth of stock. And it sat there and it sat there and it sat there. And I eventually started giving it out to people as gifts because I had nothing else to do with it. And about, I have a lot of friends to give away $80,000 worth of it. It was a whole container load, right? 14 pallets or something or whatever the number was that fits in a container. And about five years after that, it literally gathered dust in this friend's warehouse. And he moved warehouses. And another friend actually took over that same warehouse. And I went to them, I went, hey, I've got this dead stock sitting in the corner. Can I leave it there and still pay you $200? So it was accumulating, you know, this $200 a month, every month. It wasn't really costing me anything else. About five years later, a guy I knew in the community was down and out on his luck, just couldn't get a job, was struggling, but he was a great product salesman. I, I recognized early on that I'm good at selling services, not products, and that's mortgages or, or services, et cetera. Education was a service. And so this guy was great at product sales. And I eventually turned around to him one day and I said, he has the keys to the warehouse. If you can sell that stuff, whatever you make is yours. And I, my accountant wrote off all the stock and he actually managed to sell it to some $2 store for $5,000. But that $5,000 sustained his family for a couple of months until he got another position. So for me, it was a, a charitable act that cost me $80,000. <laughs> he got $5,000 out of it. But, you know, he cleared the stock and he cleared the warehouse and managed to sustain his family. And so for me, that was quite a, you know, a good outcome, although a terrible mm. outcome from an investment point of view. Wow. So how would you describe the lessons that you learned from this? Well, the one was self-learning that mm. I cannot sell product. Okay. I'm not the guy who's going to sell you the latest widget. Okay. Or yep. the latest mousetrap. It's just not me. I'm much more a service oriented person and I'm a consumer seller, not a business to business seller. Right. I mean, that's changed now in my speaking business much later on that I do sell to businesses because that's my main market. But again, I'm selling a service. I'm selling me the package that you see here, either as an online presenter or prior to COVID hmm. as a face-to-face -face, warm body sort of presenter. But the truth of it is that was probably my biggest learning. I mean, I learned a lot about the retail sector. Yep. I learned how the retail sector actually works. You know, a great friend of mine here in Perth, who actually was one of the directors of the venture fund, he actually said to me once, and I, I should have actually taken that lesson that he told me, but I never internalized it. And that's a problem sometimes. We, we don't realize the lessons till they're too late. Mm. He arrived in Australia, also from South Africa, about 15 years before me, but he understood retail. I didn't. And he understood that he needed to, he bought a little company that supplied methylated spirits to the largest chain of hardware stores. So I'm trying to remember the name of the big chain in, in the US for, mm. for a second. Home, Dep Home Depot. Home Depot, yep. And this company had a contract to supply methylated spirits to the equivalent of Home Depot on a national basis. That's all they did. Mm. They bought big drums of, of methylated spirits and put them into bottles and delivered them to Home Depot. 
And I said, that was a weird business for you to buy. And he said, no, it wasn't. Because I realized that once we had a contract with Home Depot or whatever it was, the Australian equivalent, I could get 20 other products from around the world and sell them through that same channel because I was already an approved supplier. Mm. That's why I bought the business. And that, that was an interesting lesson about retail for me right. and how, re, how large retail works, that they want to deal with as fewer suppliers as possible. I mean, as much as we as consumers would like to believe that they are out there doing the best for us and getting the widest range of product, no, they're not. Yeah. They are about, let's minimize our work. Let's order from one supplier and get 50 products delivered into our into stores, so not even into our warehouse, into our stores, mm. even better, and we don't care. Yep. You know, so that was probably the biggest lesson. Yep. Oh, so let me summarize some of the things that I took away. Um, the first thing is I just think about, I always think about sales in Thailand. It's like there's a knife seller who walks the streets selling knives, and it's just such a brutal job in the burning heat, knocking on doors, and you just realize like, Sales can be tough, particularly of physical products, because there's an infrastructure there. It relies on touch. You know, there's just so much of the physicality of a physical product that, you know, has to be delivered. There's a supply chain. You know, there's this whole infrastructure. And I think that that's my second point is it feels like people probably underestimate the infrastructure needed to really be great at selling a product. Whereas a digital product, as an example, just, you know, there's, that's not that infrastructure. Well, a service, you know, you know, now I, I, I sell online courses as you do. I sell, but even the mortgage business, you know, what is an actual mortgage when you think about it? It's not the house. It's not, it's not the piece of paper that, that gives the bank the right to, to foreclose on the property. You know, the mortgage is the conceptual barrier, the bridge between the vision of seeing themselves in that home and being in that home. That's what the mortgage is. So it's a service. It's a, you know, they could walk into the bank, but, you know, in Australia in 2021, more than 60% of mortgages originate from brokers. So the broking channel has become the dominant channel for that. And it is about the service proposition. Mm. It's about how we service our clients. It's got nothing to do with the physical stuff. And the more I do this, the more I realize I can't be the salesman with goods in the briefcase walking around and selling. And my late father used to do that, unfortunately. Mm. unfortunately that was what he did. Yep. He sold a variety of product, physical product. And I probably was motivated not to do that for most of my life. If you ever saw, for the listeners out there that saw the movie, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, mm-hmm. where he says... You know, you're going to lose this job and then you're going to be at some bar somewhere going, smoking a cigarette, drinking a drink and saying, I used to be in sales. It's a tough racket. And yeah, the other thing that I take away is something that I learned from some of my other guests. I'm thinking about one of them is Brandon Gailey, who was episode 28. And he said, do your research before spending a dime. But the point is, is that when you have an idea to sell a product before you start the business of selling that product, start selling that product. And that, you know, a good example is say, I want to sell these types of 
instruments, you know, or whatever it is, let's say these CD cases as an example, find how you can get 50 of them and get out and hit the streets and sell them before you commit to the 80,000. And what you'll find very quickly is the realities of sales, you know, all the hurdles that you'll face, you'll see in the first 50 that you sell. And if you end up at the end of that 50 with a lot of cash in the bank and thinking that went well, well, then move into your business. But if you get to the end of the 50 and you're still with the 50, <laughs> it could be a sign. Well, that's exactly it. And, and in fact, in my book, you know, on the blurb, the back of my book called Dive In. Now, why is it called Dive In? There's a story behind that. I won't go into it now, but it was about my triathlons. But the back of the book says business is not complicated. Business is simple. Just dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. Mm. But the decision point from deciding that business is not complicated, business is simple and diving in is the analysis. Yeah. The problem I find with a lot of clients of mine now that I work with, they are just on this precipice. They're not prepared to dive in. They've done the spreadsheets. They've done the analysis. They've fallen in love with the product. And that was my problem. I fell in love Mm -hmm. with the product. I didn't fall in, fall in love with the problem or the pain point that it was solving. Okay. And I never understood that I had to sell it on the pain point. I was trying to sell it for the beauty of the product and not the problem it was solving. So that was another lesson that I Mm, learned. Great lesson. So my philosophy now, which is less driven by product, it's more driven by service is to dive in and adjust your course while you're moving. But make the first step, make the first leap, go out and sell the first 50 and see if it works. Put it on your website, create a website, put it out there, advertise it. So you spend a little bit of money on advertising, but it's your market research, you know, whatever you're doing. And that's what you have to do. But if we spend our life trying to be certain about the future, we'll never Mm -hmm. do anything. We'll be stuck in this inertia phase. So I want you to think about a young man or woman who's listening to this podcast, who's been enthralled by a particular product. They're very excited just as you were. And think about this question based upon what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? I think you have to, you have to at some point jump off the cliff, Hmm. but jump off the cliff with a parachute. So if you are enthralled by the product, go and do the market research. I had been in Australia just over two years at that time. So I didn't even know anybody. You know, I, I didn't have a network built up. And all the people I knew were the companies that we'd invested in in venture capital who were high-tech startups. You know, it was the start of the tech boom. So I didn't know anyone selling product to go and ask them an opinion or research. So, so what is interesting though, and, and I'll flip that a bit. A friend of mine at the same time, he arrived in Australia three months before me. He had a product idea and he went along to a guy that he'd met who'd been here for a long time. And he said, I really need to ask you for some research on my product that I want to bring in. And he picked up his briefcase and put it on the table. And the guy said to him, I have to tell you, I'm not ethical. And if I like that product, I've got more money and more reach in you and I'm just going to do it myself. And that, that was an interesting statement that somebody could admit that they would do that. Mm. But not everyone's like that. A lot of people will altruistically do your research. So you have to ask the question. I mean, today, everybody's you know, legal. Sign this non-disclosure agreement. Well, we know half the time they're not worth the paper they're written on. Mm. 
but that's what the advice is to that that couple, that person out there saying, I've got this amazing product. I want to sell it. I want to get out there and do it. They have to do two things. They have to do some level of research independent of themselves, but they have to also understand and embrace the idea that they can sell. You know, I mentioned self-limiting beliefs. A lot of people I meet say, I'm an order taker, okay, and I'm not a hunter, mm. okay? Well, in order to sell, you need to be the hunter. When you've got Coca-Cola as your product, you're an order taker. And even then, they have representatives on the road, you know, competing with Pepsi, whatever it is, yep. still selling Coke and Coke products. And whereas you think that they're just order takers, yes, how many cases do you want this week? You have to be the hunter. And so in order to go out there, you have to accept that you can hunt. Mm. And, okay. and it took me till my 50s to realize that I actually could hunt, but in the service sector, not in the product sector. Nothing better than bagging a big deer and dragging it home to your family and carving it up and having food for three months. <laughs> Hunters, bring it home. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months is to work with business leaders, both established and emerging, to create business excellence and rich and robust cultures in their businesses so that they can measure their growth and their profitability and the growth in their profitability. Exciting. Exciting. That's, that's the passion project. Yeah. Mm. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. My number one goal for the next 12 months is to help you, my listener, increase return and reduce risk in your life. To achieve this goal, I have created the free My Worst Investment Ever community group with five free benefits I mentioned before. So just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to join. As we conclude, Rail, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, just to dive in and enjoy the journey. Amen. Dive in and enjoy the journey. Maybe go on to Amazon and search for Dive In and Rail Bricker. And then you'll learn more about diving in and enjoy the journey. And that's a wrap on another great story to help you create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.